In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. In this episode of AIDS 2020, I'll talk with Steve Morrison and Sarah Allender, who co-host this podcast with me. South Africa is at the epicenter of the HIV AIDS epidemic, 20% of the global burden. The U.S. government has invested over $6 billion in HIV in the past 15 years, the biggest commitment anywhere in the world. Sarah Allender visited South Africa in February to examine the U.S. contribution through PEPFAR. Analysis from that visit are forthcoming. As we will hear, South Africa is under intense pressure to increase both those on treatment and improve its prevention efforts. There's been a lot of exceptionally tough conversations in the past year between the United States and South Africa that we need to understand. Sustaining progress is a big lift. 4.5 million people are living with HIV on treatment, but another 3 million are not. New infections each year exceed 200,000. Some might argue that South Africa is simply too big to fail. But what does that actually mean? Steve Morrison just returned a few days ago from South Africa. He and filmmaker Justin Kenny were filming last week for the CSIS documentary in KwaZulu-Natal, Pretoria, and Johannesburg, examining the risks of regression and the HIV epidemic. That film comes out in early 2020. They visited amid the xenophobic, violent riots across the country, the continued high violence against women, amid new killings of young women that triggered national protests. We're very fortunate to have gotten on camera many of the key visionaries behind South Africa's efforts and to have gone into the urban townships and small towns to interview young women, including sex workers, living with HIV. What's striking to me is just how profoundly fragile South Africa is. That includes the HIV response and the country at large. South Africa seems to be hanging by a thread. We need to understand why and whether that's a fair assessment. Sarah, let's start with you. I want to talk about the status of the response to the HIV epidemic. What are the areas of greatest achievement in recent years? I mean, we know that South Africa saw the arrival of the epidemic late in the 90s, but what's happened in recent years? No, that's an excellent point. It is an epidemic that started later than other epidemics on the continent. And unfortunately, at the beginning of the epidemic, we saw denialism from President Mbeki, his Minister of Health, others in the senior leadership ranks, which prevented national response from really getting started in the country. Uh, since then... Because of denialism? or before, Because of denialism, denying that it was an infectious disease that existed, that, that caused death. Uh, there were herbal remedies and other uh, non-biomedical approaches put forward in order to prevent and treat, uh, and not really taken seriously as something that was taking a toll on the people of South Africa. And what was the result of that? A lot of people got infected and a lot of people died, and it's resulted in a steamrolling that has left South Africa as the biggest epidemic in the world. Keep in mind, I mean, there's 
estimated 3 million people have died of HIV AIDS in South Africa. 3 million. 3 million. Have died of HIV in South Africa. And we had an eight-year period of denialism. And in that period was when the treatment action campaign really got underway and trying to crack the code on this government with constitutional court confrontations, winning, forcing the government to begin treatment of, of mother-to-child transmission in 2002, 2003 court challenges that forced the government to start antiretroviral treatment, 2007 confrontations to get a national strategic plan. So it was a bit period of great struggle in that very same period in which the Global Fund and the PEPFAR program in the 2002, 2003, 2004 period was coming into being and large resources were coming into South Africa, but they had to be, as Sarah can describe, put through parallel channels when the government itself was not a partner. It wasn't until 2007 that the cabinet intervened and put Mbeki on his back feet and got him out of the way. Okay, Sarah, what about South Africa's president now, President Ramaphosa? So we are seeing uh, leadership from President Ramaphosa now. He has been in office, you know, about 18 months uh, and has taken on the challenge of, of trying to address HIV. I mean, I think we need to recognize that, uh, as we said, the government started late, but the government actually has caught up to a certain extent over the last decade. It funds 80% of all HIV uh, activities in the country, including almost the entire treatment program. That's really unheard of across the continent. So the government you know, should get a large number of kudos for that action. You know, the challenge, I think, is really within taking large uh, strategic policies on HIV and turning them into actions. So the president has made a public statement to put two million more people on treatment over the next uh, year and a half. He has a strong partnership with PEPFAR in trying to do that. But the actual implementation is where we're seeing a challenge and, and the money behind that. Where do you see things as falling short? So South Africa has done well in its testing policies. So actually, compared to other countries in the region, more people living with HIV in South Africa know their status comparatively. Where it has fallen short is in its uh, treatment program in terms of retaining patients. It actually put uh, around 700,000 people on treatment, newly initiated last year, but it lost the same amount to follow up, meaning people who were already in the system left the, fell system, out the system, fell out of the system. That negative net gain uh, is, you're not going to move forward with that. Uh, that's something that, that PEPFAR is holding the country to account for at the moment. Where the country is also falling short is in addressing the needs of adolescent girls and young women who carry the burden. Um, one third of all new infections are happening in the 15 to 24 year age group and predominantly among women. The country has an overwhelming epidemic of gender-based violence and rape, uh, which is also fueling the epidemic and putting young women at risk, um, coupled with uh, continuing transgenerational sexual relationships, uh, which is creating a cycle of, of infection. So we see areas in certain provinces like KwaZulu-Natal where 60% of adult women are living with HIV. I mean, that's 60%. You know, 60%. It's, it's extraordinary. It's actually older women over the age of uh, 35 who are at 60%. But that's, I mean, thinking for, we're 40 years into this pandemic that still 60% of women in a community would be living with HIV. I mean, you don't see there that anywhere else in the world. 
it, it really puts South Africa into a very particular bucket when we talk about the impact of HIV. I want to ask you both, but Steve, you're, you're just back a couple days ago. Let's look at the even bigger picture of a country that many observers are saying is hanging by a thread. What's going on, Steve? The country is suffering from economic stagnation. 50% of youth are unemployed. Foreign investment is not sufficient. The economy is not growing at a sufficient level to meet the needs. There's a deep well of frustration. Uh, we, it continues to be a magnet for migration from around the continent so that you have high levels of foreigners living there. What we saw recently was another uh, explosion of violence against foreigners, mostly against Nigerians, Tanzanians, Kenyans, Ethiopians, Somalis. These are folks who are largely running businesses of some kind. The anti-migrant violence, the xenophobic violence, also triggered uh, opportunistic looting that was a broader scope. And, and this was the first explosion of this kind we've seen since 2007, 2008. It triggered uh, the president to deliver a, a, a national speech appealing for a return to stability and civility. Um, in this period. So this is uh, frustration with a government, the ANC, the African National Congress, which is the dominant party and has been, is uh, under the period of President Zuma from 09 until just recently, 18 months ago, was regarded as captured really by um, corrupt interests and has lost sight of its of its purpose in, in delivering on key requirements, not just employment, but education, housing, basic security, and the like. And so there's a disappointment uh, and, and decline of enthusiasm and confidence in the government. There's lots of investigations that are underway, big-scaled investigations that are getting enormous amount um, of media attention. So this is something that has, I think, within South Africa, shocked people. I mean, certainly that's what we saw across the board in our conversations last week. People very, very shaken. And another what's notable is there were a couple of incidents of horrific violence, including mutilation and death of, of young women. There was a one undergraduate student who was abducted, um, raped, and murdered, and that also triggered a enormous national response, a sort of Me Too moment within South Africa, which also brought people into the street. And as, as Sarah said, the, the, there's an epidemic of rape in this country. There's over a thousand cases reported to the police per day of rapes in South Africa. And of course, that's only a fraction. So these phenomenon are ones that I think weigh heavily on, on, on a lot of citizens. Back to the, to the HIV piece, I think that w one of the things that is re relevant here is that the, their health system, like many of their other systems, are overburdened. Their health system, people describe it as crumbling. The funding is not there. You have hospitals where your elevators are not working, wards are being closed. You have that problem. You have a quadruple epidemic. You have tuberculosis, NCDs, traffic accidents on top of HIV and a crumbling system. You don't have the budgetary resources that you need across these different social functions to be delivering adequately on health, on housing, on education. Um, the um, violence that we've seen, there's law enforcement is what we saw in, in, in our interviews. Law enforcement's falling down in terms of pursuing these cases. 
this is re- leading people to ask the bigger questions around what's the future going to look like. And so I think we need, when we look at the HIV agenda and ask, okay, is this sustainable? This is the biggest epidemic. It's very fragile. It, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. And when an epidemic like this with no vaccine and no cure, the bigger context is one that gets people enormous pause in thinking, okay, let's be quite realistic around this. Let's go back to violence against women. As you mentioned, murder of the young woman brought out thousands of protesters wearing all black um, who took to the streets in Johannesburg last Friday to demonstrate really against what they called a scourge of femicide in South Africa. Sarah, what, what's going on? I mean, this is, this is really taking over the country. Right. I mean, I think, as Steve said, this is, I think, a buildup of, you know, decades long frustration among the, the population around uh, the state of safety and security for women. A lot of this is based in the former apartheid system and some of the tribal patriarchy in the diverse tribes that make up South Africa. You know, a, a, essentially a societal norm around toxic masculinity that uh, there have been attempts by a number of individuals, by the government, by Prince Zulu, by others to try to combat. Um, but I, I think it's also a, a uh, expression of the frustration, as Steve mentioned, around around the state of the economy, the state of uh, education system, jobs. Uh, there are, it's not just gender-based violence. There are high rates of interpersonal violence. Uh, and there's been some research that has shown that, you know, those who experience violence as children and the, the, that rate is quite high or see violence perpetrated against uh, their mother or their father are more likely to uh, engage in violence as adults as well as in high-risk sexual relationships that put them at risk for HIV. Let's talk about the U.S. relationship with South Africa. This year, the United States is slated to invest almost three-quarters of a billion dollars in HIV-AIDS programs. Um, A new U.S. ambassador is going to be there soon. What can we expect in this next phase of our engagement with South Africa? So I think this year has been a bit of a reckoning for PEPFAR and uh, the U.S. government's HIV engagement in South Africa that is representative of larger frustration that PEPFAR has and kind of the state of the global response. As we look ahead to 2020, we reached the first benchmark for the UNAIDS uh, fast track goals and you know, the world is not on track to meet those goals. South Africa is kind of a microcosm of that. Um, and so that PEPFAR has really had a moment of reckoning to look at where are we as a U.S. government kind of failing to make progress, where our national response is failing to make progress. And South Africa is one of those places. And so really beginning uh, last year, PEPFAR has indicated that it was willing to step in and do a quote unquote surge to support the president's push for two million more on treatment. Um, yet at the same time, there have been these systematic health systems failures, this net loss of uh, patients entering the treatment system, and some other fundamental issues at uh, various health facilities. And so at the beginning of this year, as part of the annual country operational planning process, PEPFAR essentially threatened to pull back uh, more than half of the funding. Uh, So 
the original proposed funding level was actually about $400 million. Right, but we're dealing with near 4,500 South Africans being newly infected each week. Right. So we're talking about we need to increase the investment if we want to help. Right. I mean, this is it gets to this fundamental uh, issue and and why South Africa is is different to a certain extent from other countries. Well, and again, and also I have here uh, one third are adolescent girls or young women ages fifteen to twenty four. Right. So as Steve mentioned, you have a health system that where facilities are are crumbling. Literally, the infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, Because of budget issues, you've seen 30 to 40 percent attrition rates among health workers in facilities. And just the sheer scale of the epidemic in South Africa, you have more HIV patients in a single clinic than you do in entire countries. Say that again. So in, in an individual clinic, you would have more HIV patients, just HIV, that's not the other you know, diseases that Steve mentioned, more HIV patients in a single clinic than you would find HIV patients in another country, it's in the entirety of that country. It's astonishing. Right. So you just think of the magnitude of what the government has taken on, what its partners like PEPFAR have taken on. And as you said, nearly 5,000 new infections every week on top of the nearly 8 million people who are already living with HIV. I mean, so that's a huge lift. Is three quarters of a billion dollars enough of an investment for the U.S.? It's a huge investment. It's I mean, a huge investment. Let's put it in context, right? We've put $6.5 billion in this country out of a PEPFAR aggregate global investment in the last 15 years of what, about $90 billion, six right. and a half. So this is the single biggest investment we have made. $750 million is an astonishing number for the U.S., and I think that it's there's a couple of things. We are there's no way out of this relationship, right? The there's no way out. South Africa's too big to fail. It may fail. One prays it doesn't. But we went in the last year, as Sarah has analyzed and just and and discussed here, we got into a very hard set of conversations around if we're going to stay at that level of investment, we need much higher proof that the dollars are paying off in terms of those being enrolled, but also in actions to try and bring the numbers down in terms of new infections. So, so we need prevention. results. We need results. We're, we have been insisting on, on the government uh, stepping up. There's a certain complacency that has settled into the system here. The issue has disappeared for a while from political discourse. Putting four and a half million people on treatment has removed the immediacy of the threat of people. Even though you have a quarter of a million people dying a year, it's less visible. It's less of a sense of crisis and urgency. The urgency and crisis has gone away, even though you have three million people that are living with HIV who are not on treatment. And and you're getting, as you point out, high numbers of new infections. So it is an emergency, but it's not seen as an emergency. We can't extricate ourselves from this situation. Our mutual interest is this is the epicenter of the global epidemic in South Africa. It is deeply intertwined with a tuberculosis epidemic that is unlike what we've seen in most other high burden countries around the world, in which you're seeing lots and lots of MDR, of resistant tuberculosis in South Africa. So it's a dangerous situation in multiple so levels. So we, we view this as not just us helping South Africa overcome a problem, a massive problem, a generational problem. We view this as a national security issue for us. If you believe that infectious disease epidemics like HIV or TB constitute a national security threat, 
which we do, yeah. then this is the place that you, can, that you have to, you have no choice, but to stay deeply engaged as complex and difficult and frustrating as it is. Now, do we expect our new ambassador now to really run point on this and really be the enforcer or or is there some other mechanism well, for, for it, enforcement? I mean, certainly yeah. PEPFAR would, yes. PEPFAR, PEPFAR has PEPFAR been has, very super aggressive. Right. This has been yes. a top line priority for Ambassador Burks, right. head of PEPFAR. Now, our ambassador plays a very important role there as chief of mission and engagement with, our, with the government on these matters. Health diplomacy is essential. We know that there are certain things that, that, that additional things that need to be seen. Let's remind ourselves, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa is a, a very highly respected individual and as the head of state and has made clear that he really does want to put $2 million on accelerated treatment mm-hmm. and begin to address these uh, norms of imbalance in gender power relations. Uh, abuse of women and vi- at violent, violent subordination and change norms of behavior, and there are others. But we need to be realistic. Those Much of those things are not going to change very quickly. Uh, but there's no getting out of this relationship. It's not like we can walk away. But the South Africans have to be concerned that we might walk away to some extent, or we might reduce our funding. Or of course we they're mu- concerned. They're listening to us, and and this has to be done in a respectful way, right? I mean, they are hypersensitive to their own sovereign interests. They're putting a billion and a half a year into their HIV treatment programs and prevention programs. Prevention needs to be stepped up dramatically. We're putting now this year three quarters of a billion. So they're they're doing more than any other government in Africa in terms of the investments that they're making. Uh, that's very important to keep reminding people um, of that. But PEPFAR is also having to make some very tough choices. I mean, we're We've now had more than 10 years of flatline funding for PEPFAR across the board. And so they're really looking at their portfolio and where those dollars are going to have the highest impact. And for countries and governments that are not going to play ball and ensure that they have the enabling policies, that the health systems fixes are in place, then PEPFAR is moving money to other countries that are acting more as partners. And so I, I, you know, there is a risk there, despite South Africa being too big to fail and the sub-regional consequences and all of those things. PEPFAR does have some tough choices in terms of where each of those dollars are going to go. So what we need to do is is just keep a very close watch, looking ahead to the AIDS 2020 and beyond, yeah. right? By next summer, are, are they making progress on the, putting the $2 million? On treatment, right? Are they right. making progress in in accelerating the uh, movement onto treatment? Are they making progress in their prevention efforts in new and different ways that are showing proof that they're going to be? You know, it used to be that you had w- upwards of four hundred thousand infections per year, and that's down. It dropped down to two ten. It's up this year to two forty two fifty thousand. So we we've seen dramatic reductions, but then we're seeing some 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 re up. We see certain parts of the country where young women's infections have begun to drop, right? I mean, right. in, in right. Gauteng, in the Johannesburg, in the Val area. Right. In Gauteng, we've seen some very promising drops in some of these hyperepidemic areas. We got to see much more there on that side of things. Hopefully, we will see, uh, we have a new minister, I want to make a point mm-hmm. that we have not made here, which is under uh, President Ramaphosa, uh, they've appointed a new minister of health, Mkize, who was the premier, this is very important, he was formerly the premier of KwaZulu-Natal province, which is, uh, you could argue, ground zero. Ground Ground zero. zero. 
He was the former health minister, and he's the fourth-ranking official within the ANC party structure, which means that the other provincial premiers uh, in Don't South have Africa power. have to pay attention to him, right? Yeah. South Africa is a very distributed or decentralized place in the sense that budgets are under the control, health budgets are under the control of the provincial uh, premiers. And the, and the health minister has to cajole and persuade and go out there. But in this case, we have a guy who is the number fourth ranking a personality within the ANC power structure. So those premiers have to pay attention so to So he's him. a big deal. He's a big deal. And this is a very, I think, very promising step that we're seeing here. So is all of this going to be the topic of one important topic of discussion at AIDS 2020? Is this all going to be held to account, evaluated, discussed, We would debated? hope that we will see high-level representation right. from the South Africans, both Official and 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 civil society and implementers and the like, uh, that's the norm of what you would expect to see, and that and that there'll be an open uh, discussion around all of these m multiple dimensions of this. It's inevitable. It's too damn important to the global response, and people are eager to see what happens in this next phase under the new leadership, and under this period of, you know, people waking up and saying, wait a second. This place is, as we've talked about, very turbulent internally, and this there's been lots of progress. But it, it, but if you don't see accelerated progress, you're going to see regression. But this is why it's the international AIDS 2020. It's not right. just a domestic Correct. American thing. Correct. Right. So it's always very important to see who comes from South Africa and what do they have to say. You know, and you will see activists, you'll see advocates, you'll see implementers. You, you know, the other point we have not made is that South Africa has. Uh, uh, the most impressive combination of researchers mm -hmm. and programmatic innovators and, and visionaries. This is a country that ha really stands assets. out, really stands yeah. out. These are all people we've brought on camera to talk to us in the documentary, and it's super impressive. So they, in terms of human talent on the research, the development of new technologies, the programmatic innovations, the sci basic science, it's got aptitudes that don't exist anywhere else in Africa. Right. I want to thank you both. This is an exciting and interesting discussion, and um, we'll look forward to more discussions um, as we come up upon um, AIDS 2020. Thanks, both of you, for Thanks, being Andrew. here. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.